Cynthia Miller Idris. I am professor of education and sociology at the American University, where I run the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab. Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University. These conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. We were coming back from a consortium meeting. Right. Sharing an Uber, I think, to the airport. Mm-hmm. And uh, we kind of had this great idea to partner together um, on on this podcast and, and hopefully bring um, some insight and, and some understanding to a public that is super concerned. And I can't think of a better partner than AU to do this. So I appreciate being able to work with you on this project. I agree. It's a complete honor to work with ADL and to work with you on this. It's going to be uh, a lot of fun, too, I think. In your book, um, The Extreme Gone Mainstream, I think this sort of the title is really important. So much of the public discussion is why is this becoming so mainstream? First, I mean, I think one of the stories I often tell is that that book, when it was a proposal, it was The Extreme Goes Mainstream with a question mark. And then by the time it was a draft manuscript, manuscript, it was uh, The Extreme Gone Mainstream with Mm. a question mark. And by the time the book was headed to production, the editor kind of emailed and said, you know, I think we can get rid of that question mark, don't you? So I, you know, have an essay I've kicked around a little bit called How My Book Lost Its Question Mark, which is also the sort of story about how I went from being a kind of scholar of fringe subcultural groups in one country in Europe to, you know, testifying before Congress. Like that was one of the most surprising, probably the most surprising thing that's ever happened in my life was that two-year process where I realized like my research that I had thought of as primarily communicating to an academic audience of other sociologists who study culture and youth um, had relevance to the public mm. conversation about something really important. Um, so that, you know, it was a story that that title is is broader than, you know, than, than even um, I think I realized when I was first first conceiving of it, which when I first thought about the title, I was really talking about the aesthetic transformation of, of the far right and how they had shifted from, uh, in, it started, you know, really in Germany from this racist skinhead trope of the shaved head and the bomber jacket and the high black combat boots, um, to a much more mainstream aesthetic to really, um, clothing that would blend in that was high quality that they David yeah. duked it up basically. Exactly. I mean, you just basically like you, you, and then, you know, by the time that book went to production two months months later, Charlottesville happens and you have these guys in khakis and polo shirts and you started to see the same phenomenon show up here. Um, and suddenly there was a lot more attention to that. So what does it mean when somebody who is expressing white supremacist extremist ideas doesn't look like the racist thug that you think, you know, or is not wearing a Ku Klux Klan hoodie? Like how how does the public react to that? And so the book became um, you know, a, a place to have conversations about a phenomenon that was even bigger than just clothing transformations or transformations in style. It's true, right? You, you called it like marrying the right wing ideology with pop culture in your book, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, you know, we, we see this play out, whether it's in recent language that we're seeing where some extremists are hoping for another civil war. 
sort of a Civil War II. And then there's a very popular movie back in the 80s that I remember watching called Break Into Electric Boogaloo. So now a shorthand for Civil War or Race War becomes Boogaloo and then it continues to change. Right. It evolves into this like sort of sound alike version with the word luau. And then that turns into them wearing Hawaiian shirts. And so then you get these guys showing up supposedly, you know, um, uh, protesting, you know, threats to Second Amendment rights, but wearing a you're Hawaiian shirt. You're referring to shirt, Richmond right? in particular. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right? Richmond, and 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 there've been a couple incidents afterward where individuals have showed up at state capitals, for example, but wearing Hawaiian shirts, which is a clear signal that there's this is not really just a sec- Second Amendment right issue. It's it's a, a you know at least a hint at or a suggestion of a desired civil war. And this is this is why I think it's. A problem for so many people who do want to address this, whether it's government or social media, is they may not really know that they need to look for a Hawaiian shirt to understand a motivation of somebody showing up. And so, you know, ADL, we have our hate symbols database. We update it periodically. But the pace in which uh, new memes, new language, new, you know, clothing is used is way outpacing our ability, you know, to update pieces on, on the web. Absolutely. And some of them seem so absurd that then you also get a lot of pushback, right, when you add, add these things to a hate symbols database. And so one of the things that I've done when I've given, you know, kind of talks to law enforcement or intelligence analysts or, or communities of educators and parents is is focus on the um, the the mode of communication and the kind, you know, so look at the ways in which these things are changing. So if you see a guy in a Hawaiian shirt holding, you know, uh, an automatic machine gun with a helmet and a bunch of camouflage, that Hawaiian shirt means something, Mm -hmm. right? And then you can look into what it means. That was what I found with, um, you know, sort of symbols in the clothing was sometimes I would see something like a transport ship from the 1940s on a t-shirt I talk about in the book um, that said, you know, that had the word Madagascar on it and said, you know, have a good trip home. And I thought, okay, that obviously means something. Mm. I didn't know what it meant initially. So you dig into history books, you start looking into the research of the Holocaust, and you, and eventually it became clear that um, Madagascar was proposed as a solution before the final solution that Jews were going to be deported and sent to the island of Madagascar. So, you know, when you get so you recognize the symbol sometimes or the code before you know what it means mm-hmm. if you understand to look for it. And I think that's part of what uh, the public has to be able to do. And and this is why we're always talking about, you know, context is key. It's mm-hmm. important to understand a context so that you can identify potential extremist uh, connection, but also to say that it's not. I find it ironic in a sense that most of the time that we're using uh, or pointing people to our, our our definition or our entry is to say, no, this is not extremist right. because we make it clear that you need a certain amount of context there. Right. Just having a Pepe the Frog tattoo on your shoulder does not make you a white supremacist. Absolutely. Just wearing a Hawaiian shirt, gosh, the last thing I want anybody to take out of this exactly. podcast is that makes you an extremist. And so, but that's why it's important to know uh, and, and to have this categorized in some way, right. because it's important to know when it is, but when it isn't, and mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's context. That's right. Absolutely. It's context and, and, and the way in which it's being used, the intentionality behind it. And that can be really difficult sometimes to glean from like a photo or an image, for example. So I always advocate steering a super conservative approach on that. And you can't, you know, from an, from an academic standpoint, I only 
would code something as having far right intent if I see multiple kind mm. of clues, right, in an image like oh, this is at a far right protest and surrounded by, you know, there's a bunch of different. But yeah, there, you know, you have in Germany, as I talk about in the book, I mean, New Balance sneakers that get co-opted because the N supposedly stands for Nazi and the Lonsdale mm. t-shirts get co-opted because when you zip up a bomber jacket halfway, you see NSDA, the first four letters of the Nazi party, mm. um, so that if a police officer stops you, you just unzip your t-shirt, you know, and oh, this isn't I'm not, you know, glorifying the Nazi party. So there's a lot of like playfulness, game playing, which I think is also important to understand is part of the appeal, right? It's the, it lends a kind of sense of power, of secrecy, of getting one over on adults. You're trolling the left or the mainstream at the same time as you're supposedly communicating to other insiders about the meaning of some particular symbol. So, you know, sometimes that you know, you can you can drive yourself a little crazy trying to interpret stuff. And that's part of the point, right, mm -hmm. is to throw people into sort of a tizzy of trying to analyze and figure out what does this milk emoji mean? What is this, you know, right? And so there's all kinds of ways in which it's not necessarily the most productive thing to constantly decode, as long as there are people doing that out there like ADL. But yeah. I feel like what I see on my phone, you know, in these uh, spaces that extremists exist are probably going to reach more people than, frankly, any of the television news that we watch. I think when you're talking about online, we're really talking about an ecosystem of, you know, there's social media, there's um, all the kinds of ways in which people are communicating, there's online gaming, chat platforms, mm. right? So there's, um, as you guys have done and at ADL, you've done a great job at, at surveying kind of the, I think it's your stats say 23% of young people who participate in online gaming encounter white supremacist content. I right. suspect that's actually an under, you know, <laughs> under, under uh, representation even of what, of what people, every time I use that statistic with, you know, college students, everybody's nodding, right? Like, mm. so everyone in the room is nodding. No one's surprised. And so, you know, it could be even higher than that, in my opinion, although we need the research to show that. Um, but so I think, you know, you have this whole online ecosystem and then what you have are, I mean, there's, there's lots of different dimensions to mainstreaming. So one thing that happens is, you get shifts in what we call the Overton window of acceptable public policy solutions. So the the more the more reinforced people hear kinds of let's say anti-Semitic narratives or conspiracy theories, the more that kind of starts to populate seeds of potential belief. Or maybe maybe that is maybe there is something to Soros funding a migrant caravan or mm -hmm. you know something like that. And you start to hear these kinds of things that um, that create plausible. You know, people start to think plausibly, maybe this could be true. And, or they'll hear mainstream politicians saying things like, I don't know that it is true, but I, I don't know that it isn't true, right? So actually sowing the seeds of that kind mm -hmm. of doubt, even in, it might be true, right? So if something might be true, and a lot of that spreads online and kind of helps mainstream these kind of extremist People ideas. used to say forever, you know, well, I read it online, it must right. be true. And everybody used to laugh at that fact, right. but I feel like that is actually what's yeah. happening. Yeah. When I think about a generation of young people, um, you know, when I think about young people a generation ago who were really ill-informed about how to protect their privacy online or how to recognize predators online, the kinds of manipulation techniques they would use. That's really different for kids today. Kids in digital communications classes learn an awful lot now about, you know, cyberbullying, how to be a good citizen online, but also what kinds of um, phrases might a stranger use online to get you to, you know, not tell your parents what's happening, how that manipulation kind of happens, um, and how to protect their privacy so that, you know, their digital footprints are 
um, are something they understand as they move forward in the future. But they get almost nothing or really nothing about, you know, media manipulation, fake information, disinformation, um, scapegoating, right? What are the kinds of things that they should be able to recognize online mm-hmm. as contributing to to um, the way in which extremist ideas can insert themselves into their thinking. And I think a generation from now, I hope, you know, I hope that we have, we look back on this and think like, oh, that generation, you know, got that now, but but we're not there yet, right? They're still not getting it. Your average kid is not gonna automatically gravitate towards the most vile and hateful spots on the internet. I mean, that still, you know, requires some investigation. Now there's a whole set of sort of entry points whether it's hilarious Holocaust memes, and I say that, you know, sarcastically, or whether it's just these online spaces, even on YouTube and Facebook and TikTok, etc. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the, you know, major questions right now in academic research on the far right around this question of algorithmic radicalization and how it works. And I think one of the things I think that's important to understand is that it's not entirely passive, that the, there was a lot of, you know, flutter of research um, and, and conversation about this that sort of positioned as if people would passively fall into something without any effort on their part. And I think where the, where people are in a more nuanced way starting to talk about it now is, is that there is an interaction between algorithms and human behavior that we don't yet fully understand. And I hope that there will be a lot more research in the coming years that sort of says, how do algorithms shape the choices that human beings, you know, beings right. make as they move forward on the internet. And so, you know, algorithms are, it's not just that you're, you know, you're passively being led into this, um, these series of videos, but they are making recommendations when you watch, you stumble on one thing that that limit what you see. And there are efforts now to redirect a program that right. that you guys have been involved in and to um, there are efforts from activists online to try to insert other kinds of um, progressive content that would counter those narratives, but nothing that shows evidence yet. But I think that's where the research is headed to sort of start to think about how can tweaks in the algorithm prevent this, of course, from the companies themselves, but also um, what can be done to kind of educate people about how they, how their own choices are being constrained by the way in which some of this artificial intelligence sort of works. My position is they're trying to sell you stuff every single day that you don't want, right? right? And so we might as well try to explore ways to do it for good. But I, I do think at the end of the day, it's going to take a real commitment from these companies yeah. that I don't know if we've seen enough. I don't think we have seen enough. I think there is some recognition that um, this is a problem, not just in the U.S. too, I should say, but and not just in northern, you know, Western Europe or in North America, but you have, you know, countries where millions of people are about to come online who have not been online, right? As broadband access expands, as people start getting access to devices, um, and in ways that some, in some cases, the incitement of violence that's happened for people who are very new to these kind of online online media landscapes. Can you talk about the global nature of what used to be a very American white supremacist movement? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, one of the things that there's been a huge shift in awareness among public policymakers, at least, and probably law enforcement as well in the U.S. and abroad, that white supremacist extremism is not white nationalism, that it is not nationally 
um, bounded and that they, that these groups and individuals are inspired by each other across borders. They're sharing ideology. And in fact, they share an ideology and an ideological frame about a great replacement, which, um, says that there's an existential threat posed to whites through demographic change and immigration. Uh, and then share some of them on the far fringe, uh, uh an, an idea that the way the best response to this is to accelerate societal chaos and bring about, um, you know, the apocalyptic end times, which will then create a rebirth into a new white civilization, that that is, you know, that you see that repeatedly in a variety of different countries. You see it shared and circulated online. There are live streaming attacks and the increasing um, use of English in the manifestos and in the videos from attackers overseas, even when that's not their native language, mm. I think is really important here because they are clearly speaking to a global audience, not to a national one. So these are not attacks that are only or always motivated by national policies or immigration issues or migration issues or national um uh, identities, but rather by some kind of shared idea about whiteness and white civilization. And I think I, what I have seen myself is that since Christchurch, there's been a huge shift in policymakers and law enforcement's understanding of that and ability to engage with cross-national conversations around it. I feel like the next step is to have interventions engage in those kinds of conversations as well. So one of the things we're doing in the lab at AU is building a repository of intervention toolkits uh, across borders. So we have a translation and adaptation project to bring some of the materials from Germany, let's say, when they have toolkits for what do bookstores do if Nazis show up? What do, you know, um, what are the, what they call first aid kits for um, you know, people when a community is hit by violence, um, by first aid kit, it's a phrase that's used to like, what are the first things that you do, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and there are a lot, a lot of that material is available in Norwegian or Swedish or French or German, but it hasn't been made available to English language audiences. So we're hoping that that becomes something that we can do and contribute to. Here you've, you've been studying this for a long time. You're testifying in front of Congress. People are seeking out, you know, your expertise and ideas because you're not new to this. But it's been intense, right? This has been an intense time. And how do you deal with this? Yeah. What do you What do you do to make sure that you're able to continue, not lose yourself? Right. Exactly. I mean, I think um, it's a great question, and it's actually a question not just that I think about for myself, but that I think about a lot for my doctoral students, who sometimes I feel like are just burning the candles at all ends. You know, really. It can feel so intense, um, and the consequences feel so large. You know, obviously they are so large that that um, people can burn out, and then you see people burn out and kind of drop out of the of the of the conversation. And so it's. Um, you know, that's not something I want to happen to me or to anybody else who's building expertise in this field. So obviously, I mean, it's going to sound kind of, um, you know, trite, but, you know, there's self-care involved, right? There's yeah. mental health um, concerns involved. There's having supportive communities around you, having supportive communities of other scholars. Everybody knows we're all going to be exhausted for the next few days responding to inquiries that we want to respond to. We want to be able to reach the public, um, but kind of supporting each other through that. And I think having a community, having a community here and overseas, I have a really good community of folks overseas as well, because I lived overseas for a long time, folks who work on this in Germany and in the UK, um, you know, is essential, right? I think it feels um, to me that we all have each other's backs, that people are looking out for 
bad actors out there um, when things happen and um, that we're all kind of in it together. The reverberations of terror, I mean, it's even the word terror itself kind of, it terrorizes, right? And when you think about terrorist violence, it terrorizes entire communities, entire societies. I mean, you have people who feel those reverberations, um, both from vulnerable communities and also just the horror of, you know, trying to be an ally, trying to be supportive to other communities and knowing how vulnerable they feel. And I think, you know, obviously I'm, I was a white woman. I have a tremendous amount of privilege in these, you know, in, in these conversations as well in terms of not feeling the direct kinds of threat that people of color might feel or somebody walking into a synagogue might feel. Um, but I think that also comes then with an obligation to be a voice that can engage in different ways. And, and you know, I, these far-right extremists in Germany or youth in and around those scenes um, talked to me and, you know, would let me interview them in ways that probably would have been different for somebody who looked not like me. And I think that allowed me to learn a lot about those drivers and what um, drove them into this into those scenes. So in those situations where you know maybe you're getting access how are you experiencing that at the moment, sort of recognizing that you're there because you're not mm-hmm. immediate target, at least, of some of their, their hatred? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think that uh, there are a couple different things. One, I whenever I hear something vile in an interview, I mean, that happens. And sometimes it's very hard, just like it's very hard to look at hate. You know, I was looking at hate a lot through the image archive that I built. Um, that's toxic, right? It's painful and it's difficult. And listening to hate in transcripts, in interviews, reading it in those transcripts is also very difficult. Um, But I think I constantly remind myself that capturing those stories allowed me to better understand how we design interventions. And someone has to listen to that. Otherwise, we're not really going to know. So like when you're speaking here and and you're making points and something resonates, I kind of nod and, you know, it's part of our, you know, what people can't see as they're listening to this. I mean, is that happening when you're interviewing... You know, uh, some neo-Nazi? So methodologically, I will say that I worked very hard on the poker face. Um, (laughs) So, and I work, you know, even I was on a a C-SPAN interview live for an hour uh, last year when I got calls that were some some it was viewer call-in show and there was a lot of anger. uh, But can I just say, viewer call-in shows... I mean, really? Is it really necessary? But anyway, well, go ahead. Radio calling shows are one thing, too. But this was, I knew I was live online and there were some, you know, there were some uh, conspiracy theories being batted about. There were, you know, virulent, like people very angry, vitriolic kind of at me, directed at me. Um, and, uh, you know, I was proud of that looking back at the at, at that afterward that with one exception, when I really did have a micro expression in my face, when someone called me Miss Idris, you know, just, um, <laughs> it just got me a little bit. But, um, you know, with one exception, I really did maintain the poker face. And I think that's because I was trained for years, really, in qualitative research methods and how you do interviews. So uh, the nodding, there is nodding, and it's very difficult. I try not to nod um, and, you know, make sure it's clear in agreement, but I'm getting them to tell me more, right? I do want you to continue and tell me more. And, and you know, I'm interviewing, I'm lucky that I'm not interviewing. I mean, it'll be interesting someday when you talk to Pete Simi or to others, you know, Kathy Blee, who've really worked in the hardcore of movements. I have not done that. I mean, I interview youth who are what I call in and around far-right scenes because I feel like they're the most reachable. These are the pathways in. I interview them in school settings, you know, during right, free periods right. or after school. It's all a very, it's a much kind of safer and safer 
and less extreme environment. Um, so even when they say hateful things, it's probably different than talking to someone who I know has been violent or is in prison or something like that, which would be harder. There has long been this narrative of when um, a white person carries out an attack, there's a lot more discussion about mental illness as a driver and that, you know, white people are sort of given benefit of a doubt in a weird way that others are not. Absolutely. So um, as you said, I mean, we often see in the case of white men in particular who um, commit violence, sometimes without actually a political or ideological motive that's detectable, like the, you know, um, the Las Vegas shooter or something, people just assume that person must be mentally ill. How could someone do something so awful, right? And I think that is a coping mechanism for people, especially white people who maybe see that person as like them, that couldn't Mm. possibly be something that would ever touch my family or anyone I know our love we're different from that person because we're not mentally ill so i think it's like a protection you know, it mechanism is a protection, yeah. you know it is a protection mechanism it's a way of distancing um and i think um you know i think an honest conversation about mental illness as a potential vulnerability to extremist rhetoric and violent and and a potential motivator you know leading to violence um is important to have but the way that i think about it is you know there are any number of vulnerabilities it, it, there's one of the difficult things is it's like this isn't a recipe there's no formula there's no chemistry here you know that where you can lay out exactly in this combination this is going to lead someone to become violent in fact we actually know very little about what triggers one person who's already radicalized to become violent versus another Um, but we do know something about the different vulnerabilities that lead people to become susceptible to believing extremist rhetoric and becoming ideologically radicalized Um, and by radicalization i mean people then position you know us against them in a war to an end they see see um, violence as a moral outcome, you know, as a moral solution to a problem, not just as a, you know, justifiable kind of um, means, and um, really see an existential threat from others to one's own group, right? So uh, I think when you look at those kinds of vulnerabilities, they include things like um, a desire, some isolation that leads to a desire for a sense of belonging or a, a desire to have a meaningful purpose in life, um, sometimes resistance or rebellion, anger against um, mainstream society and adults. You see those all, tropes. All qualities that I think all of us um, either have or have felt in, in you know different levels of extremes. Absolutely, right? Yeah. And so um, things that a lot of people feel. And then uh, and then things like um, sometimes economic precarity can lead to it. I mean, what we know from the evidence on this is that it's not actually unemployment, but the experience of feeling economically insecure that can also lead to some of these older, other vulnerabilities. Uh, and I would add mental illness to one of those as one of those vulnerabilities. I think that uh you know, not all mental illness either, but particular kinds of mental illness, particularly ones that, for example, might lead someone to have paranoid delusions or um, to be more susceptible to conspiracy theories as an explanation, are a vulnerability. But, you know, there are millions of people who have mental illness who do not go on to become radicalized. I, I noticed that um, when you did a congressional testimony on the sort of global nature of white supremacy and in other conversations you and I have had, you you make an effort really not to at least publicly name 
uh, those individuals who have carried out these attacks. And I know some journalists have, you know, started to, to do that as well. And even as you mentioned with manifestos, not sort of excerpting too much of that because at the end of the day, that gives, um, them the the fame if you will that they want yeah i mean i absolutely think it's important for enclosed circles of individuals i think um you know what i told congress when i was testifying was you know i'm happy off the right you know afterward in a room to name the groups i'm talking about but i didn't want to become a clip in a propaganda video which then happened, <laughs> yes, right? It did. So, um, so actually, you know, there was a little trolling back at me, kind of, and sort of saying like, "You're not going to name us, but we're going to use that anyway." And so, I think, um, you know, so maybe that backfired in its own way. Maybe that's partly what happened. But I, my, you know, I think this is. I, th- I thought about this a lot because I think when you when you work on something like I have done with brands and clothing, um, it's. I really want to take as many steps as possible to not drive business to these um, companies. And it has happened in interviews where, I mean, part of the interview was showing young people, you know, a series of 34 images that included t-shirts from brands, for example, to see how they interpret those. And there were moments where I worried that, you know, they'd say something like, oh, that's a really cool shirt. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh my gosh, did I just drive this person to, you know, are they going to go look this up later and then buy the shirt? Have I helped that brand market um, their clothing in a way that's driving a profit. And I think there's a risk, there's always a risk of um, glorifying or helping the market or spread the ideology further. And there's nothing some of these groups would like more than to be publicly named and, you know, help that brand. And, you know, when you take it to the extreme of a, of a mass shooter who becomes a household name, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I think there's something to be said about remembering the names of the victims more than we're remembering the name of the perpetrator. I absolutely perpetrator. agree. And I also think I'm conscious of my role as an academic, which is it's different, I think, for, you know, a group that is monitoring and whose whose mission involves kind of um, providing first um, first sort of response information that, you know, you're the go-to organization. I cite you in my academic work all the time. Um, or a journalist who's reporting on something. I think everybody has to make their decisions based on what their mission is. I don't think people have an idea of how sophisticated and, you know, sometimes yeah. you got to show it in order to explain it. It's not enough to sort of describe Absolutely. it. I think it's really important. And I think, you know, I th- what's most important to me is that this is done thoughtfully and that there are people, you know, in whatever you know, role as a policymaker or a journalist or uh, an organization that's educating the public or an academic that people have given some thought. And I think where it's risky is when people just, you know, um, give it no thought, right? So that there should be some principles behind the decisions and know that a lot of this is fuzzy and there's no easy answer to, you know, whether you do name or not name or whether you share this information or not. Um, you know, I think to the extent that you can reduce things like hyperlinks that allow people to, you know, one click um, and get to the site themselves, I try to do that. Um, but obviously I need, you know, I need to have some citations in my book that refer people to the website so they're not going to believe the work and it's not academically valid. What do you think people can do who are listening to this who want to, you know, be part of the response in some way or, or, or don't want to feel helpless in the face of hate? 
It's a great question. I think, um, I mean, I do think the more trainings we can do of adults who interact with young people in local communities, the better, right? So I think we should be training, you know, youth group leaders, mixed martial arts trainers, right? I mean, anybody who is out there, coaches, because it, you know, it's like that if you see something, say something thing that, you know, we heard on the New York City subways for so many years, parents and adults, like people hear stuff and then they don't know what to do with it. They don't feel empowered. They might not recognize it. They don't feel empowered to intervene. And when they do, sometimes it makes it worse because then the kids just react saying like, oh, you're just a triggered snowflake. And, you know, hmm. they're driven further off. So how, what, is, what would a training... You know, what does that look like? One thing that happened to me, I was in the middle of an interview with a journalist, you know, sitting on camera and, and he sort of stopped the interview and said, you know, he was, he overheard his son um, and a friend in the kitchen putting a pizza in the oven. And, you know, I don't even know if I want to say what the meme is, but this awful Holocaust. I can you know, imagine the joke. Yes, yeah. right. And one of them said, the friend said this awful joke, right, about, um, ovens and pizzas and that relates it's a, it's a meme that circulates and he heard it and he's studying this stuff as a journalist and didn't know what to do like do i go into the kitchen and confront them do i um you know will that further shame them will it drive them down a path you know and so eventually he did and they said dad it's a joke it's a meme everybody says it right and so um you know that to me that sticks in my head as an example of both the kind of horror of their of the, that they said it, that everybody says it, that they thought that this is nothing to worry about, but also how somebody who already knew what that was, who was already receptive to realizing that needed to be, didn't know what to do, mm. right? And the lack of empowerment that teachers and parents and adults who are around young people feel to know, you know, what is a good way to do this that doesn't drive them down, further down some kind of online rabbit hole, um, where people are just going to tell them, you know, you're isolated and, and these are snowflakes and they're triggered. And so I think we need broad scale kinds of trainings that are include role plays that help, you know, that also have youth advisory boards driving mm -hmm. them. I mean, that have to be kind of help us understand how to help adults intervene when they see it happening. So the extremists are, again, ahead of the game in terms of making sure that, you know, their manifestos, their um, call outs are in English and we're we're catching up, catching up. Yes. And catching up in ways that often are Band-Aid, you know, reactive solutions rather than um, proactive, strategic, forward thinking. What what's the next thing that we need to be ahead of? And I think um, I feel like these conversations are starting to happen in bigger ways. And hopefully uh, we'll start to see that kind of response be more proactive. That's not a small thing. So Thanks. thank you for what thank you do. Thank you. I mean, it's, I really have been saying, you know, I really feel like this is a public health crisis and the best approach, or at least the place where I can contribute the most is in thinking about an inoculation, immunization approach to it, which is broad scale public education and education of young people. And, you know, that's one part of the story. I need people. We need people working on law enforcement and monitoring. And I'm glad that the FBI is out there doing that. And I'm glad that these other, you know, authorities internationally are working on it. But um, but the more we can have a broad approach and if there's a niche there that needs to be filled, I'm, I'm you know, honored to be a part of it. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you, Orrin. That was fun.
ADL is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and training that enable law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies, to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org. American University's Center for University Excellence, Q, is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril. To learn more, visit American.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.